Welcome to the American Maritime Podcast, powered by Big Wig Podcasts. I'm your host, Jennifer Carpenter, and today we are delighted to have as our guest, Sam Norton. Sam is the president and CEO of Overseas Shipholding Group. OSG is a publicly traded company based in Tampa, Florida, that operates a large fleet of Jones Act qualified oil tankers and articulated tug barge units. Sam is a well-recognized expert on energy transportation. He has spoken and written eloquently about the role of American maritime in energy security, as well as national and homeland security. We are really looking forward to talking with you today, Sam, uh, about the Jones Act in general, about the energy situation, including in New England. And we look forward to hearing a little bit more about maritime decarbonization and OSG's efforts to make your operations even more sustainable. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jennifer, and good afternoon, and wonderful to be here with you. Let's start with something easy. You are a well-respected expert on oil and gas transportation markets. You are frequently quoted in all manner of media, but I'm gonna start with a softball. What does OSG do, and how did you get into this industry? So uh, Overseas Shipholding Group, often referred to as OSG, is, uh, is an owner operator of uh, oil tankers and, and tug, uh, articulated tug barges. Uh, our main job is to transport transportation fuels uh, and crude oil around the United States. Uh, as you say, we're based in Tampa. We operate today a fleet of 20 vessels in total, um, including uh, large crude oil tankers that bring uh, Alaskan produced crude oil from Alaska to the uh, West Coast refineries and the uh, principal business of distributing transportation fuels from refinery centers in the Gulf of Mexico into Florida and the East Coast of the United States. Thanks so much. So you mentioned a couple of different kinds of fuels there. For our audience and for me, who know a lot less about this than you do, can you kind of walk us through what are some of the key fuels that American Maritime delivers for our economy and our country every day? So it's, uh, it's pretty well known that the United States today is uh, one of the largest producers of energy, uh, of all types of energy in the world. Uh, that energy needs to be distributed around the United States. Much of it goes by pipeline, uh, but along the coasts of the United States, uh, the maritime industry plays an important role as well as up and down the rivers, uh, as you know. Um, our vessels uh, are basically transporting uh, from the uh, um, sort of raw material crude oil, as I said, we bring Alaskan crude oil from uh, Valdez, Alaska, down to the West Coast refineries in Washington State and California. Uh, we also move crude oil uh, within the Gulf of Mexico from production uh, outlets, maritime uh, marine outlets in the Gulf of Mexico to refinery uh, facilities in the Gulf of Mexico, and as well crude oil up to the uh, East Coast refineries based predominantly in the Delaware Bay. Um, that's that's an important part of our business, but by far and away, the largest part of our business is, tra is uh, moving transportation fuels. Transportation fuels are <clears throat> uh, roughly gasoline. Everybody knows they go fill up their, their car with gasoline. Uh, diesel oil, uh, diesel is, uh, or middle distillates in general, includes jet fuel and diesel oil. Those are for more industrial uses and also for heating oil. So uh, really important parts of the U.S. economy are, are intermediated by our company uh, from the refining and production centers uh, into the principal distribution points, uh, mostly on the East Coast of the United States, as I said. 
thanks for kind of painting that picture for us. That is really helpful. Now, how has the Russian invasion of Ukraine upended, disrupted energy transportation in the U.S.? And I guess not just energy transportation, but energy markets generally. So the, so the global market has been more uh, immediately and directly impacted by the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, understand that, like any uh, complicated system, uh, the, the uh, well-worn paths and uh, established supply chains um, uh, in a very complex system get, uh, get well-established and, and people get used to operating within those, uh, those lanes. Uh, Russia is a huge supplier of energy to uh, Europe in particular. Uh, less so to the United States, but also to the United States. And with the, uh, the advent of the incursion into Ukraine, um, a lot of that stopped. There were sanctions put on Russian oil exports. Uh, Russian oil exports stopped uh, for crude oil in December. will soon be banned uh, completely uh, from the 5th of February. Uh, but even uh, ahead of those deadlines, the uh, self-sanctioning, it's called, a lot of people have uh, moved away from uh, participating in in Russian energy trades, uh, that's that's just disrupted the the established supply chains uh, in a big way. And uh, the up, upshot of that is that uh, oil must move much longer distances um, to get from further sources of of energy uh, to Europe in particular, but also to some of the other places that Russia supplied. Uh, and that and that lengthening of supply chains uh, has the effect of tightening. The global shipping market it's an artificial constriction of supply uh, so that sent tanker rates uh, to very high levels uh, certainly over the second half of last year uh, they've come off a bit uh, in recent months but uh, they're still very very high and the disruption is still being sorted out as people try and understand ultimately what the implications of the of long-term um, russian sanctions or sanctions against russian uh, product are going to have uh, to the united states I think, I think the principal impact has been uh, the U.S. has become far more integrated in the international markets in the last 10 years. If you go back, I don't know, 10 years ago, uh, crude oil uh, exports were uh, prohibited by law. Uh, LNG exports didn't exist at all. Uh, and even the refined product uh, of, our, of our domestic refining industry didn't really get much into the international markets. Today, probably 30 to 40% of everything produced in the United States is finding its way into international markets. And so when you see the disruption uh, that was caused by the Russian invasion internationally, it tends to draw a lot of supply that would maybe have found its way into the United States over to overseas markets because the prices are better there and the market re reacts to that. Interesting. Thank you. So closer to home, over the last year and a half, the Biden administration has released and sold more than 250 million barrels of oil from our strategic petroleum reserve. Uh, no Jones Act waivers have requested have been requested and none have been granted to move that oil. Why is that? This is the kind of situation where usually we see waiver requests and we haven't. Did we need them? What's going on? So, uh, you know, like many things, location, location, location is the answer to a lot of answers, a lot of questions. Uh, the strategic petroleum reserves are, are centered in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, along the, the Texas and, and Louisiana coast. Um, many of these sites are connected by pipelines. And so uh, the domestic refineries that have been bidding for those barrels 
in, in most cases have opted to have pipeline delivery, so there's no need to deliver them through a waterborne uh, capacity. Um, some has, and uh, the Jones Act uh, fleet that would be necessary to move those uh, cargoes that have been waterborne delivered, uh, they've been met by the Jones Act fleet that was available, including uh, in the case of OSG, several of our vessels uh, over the course of the second half of last year were actually delivering uh, strategic petroleum reserve cargoes. Uh, the other interesting thing is, as I said earlier, the integration of the U.S. energy markets into the uh, global markets, uh, those strategic petroleum reserves, many of them were actually exported. They were bought by uh, traders that uh, then, then directed those crude oil uh, cargoes into the international market. Uh, some might think, well, what's the point of releasing strategic reserves if ultimately it doesn't help the United States? But the impact of that was to uh, put an overall cap on the, on the crude oil prices because crude oil trades at a global on a global market. Uh, so uh, in many ways, it's fungible if that crude oil were to go into the international market. It helps to uh, increase supply overall and therefore uh, pull some of the, um, uh, of the, of the hot speculative uh, pricing uh, structure out of the crude oil prices that we saw in the immediate aftermath of, uh, of the Ukraine invasion. Got it. Thank you. Uh, so ExxonMobil has been quoted a few times saying that uh, if we could just waive the Jones Act, they and other oil companies would be able to lower the price of gas. Now, we know when we talk about oil companies, we're talking about the industry's customers here, but are they wrong? I think so. Uh, you know, there's there's a, a lot of soundbite value in trying to uh, pinpoint the Jones Act as being the singular cause for problems in gasoline uh, and diesel in general, uh, in particular, over the last several months. Uh, but the facts just don't support that. Uh, you know, as I said, most of the energy supply in the United States, the transportation fuels, are delivered by pipeline or truck. Uh, there is an important uh, element of, of energy supply up and down uh, the river systems in the central part of the United States, as well as the business that OSG is involved in along the coast. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that a waiver of the Jones Act on an, from an economic point of view would probably have less than one cent per gallon differential in the delivered price uh, or the retail price of gasoline. Uh, so it's really hard for me to understand why that would have any impact whatsoever on retail consumer pricing. Well said. Sam, let's talk a little bit about the energy situation in New England. I know you've written quite a bit about this market watch, the New Hampshire Journal. Uh, for our listeners, why are New England politicians blaming the Jones Act for energy challenges this winter? And I don't think it's the first time they've done that either. What, what's going on? Jennifer, I'm glad you asked that question. It's, it's, it seems like uh, every year we come upon the same kind of issues. Uh, New England is, uh, in many ways, uh, an energy island uh, for the United States. Uh, that's by choice. Uh, as everyone will acknowledge and accept that the best and most cost-effective way to deliver energy is by pipeline. Uh, but the New England states and many of the states around them uh, have uh, vehemently opposed new pipelines to be able to deliver, uh, in particular, natural gas, which is the primary uh, energy uh, source that is in the news mostly uh, in, in the past several months. Um, and if you don't have pipeline delivery of natural gas, then 
the only other way to do that is by sea. But if you uh, need to bring uh, liquefied natural gas in by sea, you need to be able to build the infrastructure and the storage capacity to allow yourself to, uh, to accept sufficient um, uh, quantities of gas during the uh, low seasons. Low season in, in New England is in the summer. Uh, so when, when uh, everybody is not worried about their heating uh, uh, requirements, uh, you should be building uh, gas storages in adequate storage facilities so that when the colder weather comes along, you have enough uh, supply to be able to meet the uh, surges and peak demand that would come because of the cold weather. Uh, none of that infrastructure exists in, in, in New England, uh, mostly because the uh, the political uh, will to uh, challenge those who are against energy infrastructure in general uh, doesn't exist. And so uh, when you get a cold winter like this year and when you have uh, uh, home heating for natural gas competing against the electrical power generation for an expanding population in New England, uh, you get potential for shortages of, uh, of gas because of that very low uh, storage capacity that's inherent in, in the infrastructure that's been committed to. Um, this, is, this is a problem. Uh, everybody acknowledges it. Nobody wants to take responsibility for the problem. So the Jones Act becomes an easy scapegoat by uh, people saying, well, you can't, you can't, there are no Jones Act LNG tankers, and therefore we should allow foreign flag tankers to come in and bring that gas to New England and all problems would be solved. Uh, I think that's a really naive approach. Uh, the gas is going to be priced at the margins, and whether a foreign flag vessel can bring it from Trinidad or from 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 uh, Corpus Christi, um, the price delivery price is in all probability going to be the same. Uh, so there will be no relief, and even then, the storage capacity in New England is not sufficient to allow for a large build. So it's still going to be kind of just in time inventory delivery uh, that is not likely going to remove the threat of shortages, in my opinion. That is really helpful background on LNG. Let me switch to diesel. Uh, we were hearing quite a bit uh, late last year about a potential diesel supply shortage in this country. I heard some commentators saying we've only got 25 days of diesel stockpile left. Can you just kind of walk us through what's been going on in the diesel market? Do, do we have a shortage and is there a maritime role here? What's going on? So, um... Again, the situation in Europe uh, as, as a consequence of the Russian invasion, I think had the largest uh, impact on the diesel markets in, in, in the lead up to this winter. Um, a lot of diesel produced in the United States was being exported to Europe as opposed to directed to domestic inventory uh, storage areas. Um, pricing differentials encourage that. People in Europe are willing to pay more for the diesel. And again, the point that I made earlier about the integration of the U.S. energy markets and international markets, uh, it just becomes more and more apparent every year that this is a factor that we have to deal with. Um, you know, one of the things that was really interesting to me is for much of the, of the, of the fall, uh, the pipeline capacity from, uh, from the Gulf of Mexico up to the Northeast was not, the pi pipeline wasn't full. So if there was a if there was a pricing issue or a Jones Act issue or some sort of some sort of logistical impediment to building inventories in the Northeast, uh, you would have you would have felt that the first thing that would have happened is that pipeline would have been filled up to be able to deliver the maximum amount of product uh, possible. But that just wasn't the case. So 
it was really, uh, uh, there's some technical issues. The market was what in oil traders language is called backwardated, which means it was more expensive to store oil than, uh, than to sell it. So that also impacted uh, inventory levels. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it was a case of the market needing to work in order to create the right incentives. And, and in the last several months, uh, we've seen the market go from backwardation to contangle, which means the forward price is higher than the, and then the spot price. So, so then you get paid to store uh, oil. And you've also had a little bit of easing of the, of the pressure in Europe to be able to bring uh, cargoes uh, across the Atlantic. And so we've seen supplies begin to move up the East Coast and begin to restock those inventories. And, and, and frankly, that news story seems to have gone off the pages, the front pages and off the, you know, the evening uh, news. I haven't seen any story on shortage of diesel for weeks now. So the market seemed to have worked there. Uh, but again, to me, the main takeaway is the integration of the, the of our domestic uh, energy industry into the national industry industry is, is going to create these kinds of dislocations likely more often than it has in the past as we look forward and it's something that it bears watching thanks for that explanation that really that really helps make it clear um, tell us a little bit about what american carriers like osg and others do and have done to supply the new england region with fuel so for OSG, uh, uh, I can speak to uh, specifically, uh, we have, as I said, uh, 20 vessels, uh, probably 16 of those are operating in the Gulf of Mexico and into the East Coast of the United States. Uh, we're quite fortunate right now that all of our ships are under contract with oil major uh, refineries and distri distributors. And so uh, those are the companies that uh, decide where the ships go and where the cargo that is loaded on those ships will uh, eventually wind up. Um, but we have been able to observe through the fall and into the early part of the winter, uh, several of our vessels have indeed gone north to New York Harbor or to New Jersey or to New Haven. Uh, bringing cargoes of, of diesel and gasoline uh, uh, that are directed by our customers to go to those areas. Uh, so that's been an encouraging thing to see. And, and, and I think part of that uh, resolution of that shortage of inventory that we spoke about earlier. What I think I'm hearing you say is that uh, New England is essentially relying on the international spot market to move LNG when they need it during the winter. How does that put New Englanders at risk? And is there a better alternative? How could they get out of kind of this cycle of uh, potential shortage request for waiver into something that's going to be more reliable, more secure? They rely a lot on spot markets. Uh, when the markets are functioning normally, when there's an ample supply, when uh, the supply chains are well lubricated and everything is running as, uh, as per normal, um, that looks great. Everything works. Supply gets gets delivered. Prices are relatively attractive, uh, and uh, and there, and there's no news uh, in effect. The problem is when you get the disruptions like we saw last year with the with uh, the Russian Ukraine situation, um, then that spot market tends to get very volatile or disappear altogether, and uh, and that's when that risk really manifests itself, and you and you think about wow. Shouldn't we have a better plan, at least a fallback plan, build more robust uh, capabilities to be able to handle these kinds of dislocations? And I touched on some of those uh, solutions earlier. You know, in my view, um, the, New England should recognize the, the uh, importance of, of natural gas, LNG and pipeline delivered gas. 
uh, to their uh, electrical generating grid as well as their home heating uh, capacity, and they should build uh, surplus storage capacity uh, in order to allow uh, uh, buffer uh, storage to be held uh, rather than relying uh, totally on the spot market and then to fill those buffer storages with contract deliveries. Uh, and if you had those kind of contract deliveries, uh, I think you could probably uh, develop a scenario where a Jones Act vessel could, could, uh, could operate uh, and do that relatively competitively. Um, as long as the volumes and the consistency of those volumes were, uh, were spread out across the year to allow a, a regular service to be developed. That's one of the problems is New England's gas, uh, natural gas demand is so seasonal. Uh, the LNG deliveries, if you look at the deliveries, there are no deliveries between April and October. <clears throat> They're all centered in the November, December, January, February uh, period, and it's very difficult it's very difficult to build a business around that kind of seasonality if you're trying to build something that's more robust. Uh, so spreading those deliveries out on a contract basis and building the necessary stories to allow that to happen, I think that would uh, ultimately give uh, New Englanders a lot more comfort in knowing that they're not going to be exposed to the volatility and the price hikes, spikes that we saw earlier this year um, that uh, occur when you're, when you're wholly dependent upon a spot international market. Sounds like just some long-term planning and getting out of soundbite mode and into real, let's do the hard work of preparing uh, is where we need to be. Thanks for laying that out. Welcome to American Maritime Voices, your place to be heard. As part of American Maritime, you are critical to moving and securing our country. And now you can help tell the story of Maritime and be part of key decisions that affect it. American Maritime Voices was created to help you speak up, show your pride, and when needed, push back. It's free to become a voice, and we'll keep you informed of what's happening in Washington so you can help change the course of issues that matter most to you. As a voice, you'll get monthly updates, have access to podcasts and videos, and receive action alerts when your voice is needed most. The future of Maritime is in your hands, and its story needs to be told. Will you help tell it? On any given day in Washington, policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. On 80 Proof Politics, a guest and I will visit a D.C. watering hole and distill the art of advocacy by pulling back the curtain a bit and taking a look at how they play their part in the sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Quick shift of gears before we wrap up. I wanted to just talk a little bit about decarbonization in the maritime industry. I know that OSG is a member of the Blue Sky Maritime Coalition, which is committed to reducing greenhouse gas emissions from maritime transportation. Your company has committed to doing that. At the same time, you've cautioned regulators, we got to be smart about this. We don't want to set pie in the sky, zero emission goals that we can't meet and then find ourselves without this vital uh, transportation capacity. Can you talk to us a little bit about where OSG is on this sustainability journey and just anything else you want to say around this very important topic? So I think uh, we all have to acknowledge that uh, this is the world that we're living in right now and climate change is a, a very important topic. And for uh, companies, private companies, uh, although public listed private companies like OSG, uh, we certainly feel a responsibility to uh, work 
to see improvement, to uh, acknowledge the impact of uh, greenhouse gas emissions and to uh, invest in and uh, think uh, and become more intelligent and to act more smartly uh, to try and reduce the impact that our company in particular and our industry in general uh, has on climate change uh, as we, you know, as we contemplate what our children and grandchildren's future will look like. Um, so we're committed to uh, trying to make a difference. That's one of the reasons why we joined the Blue Sky Maritime Coalition, because that's a coalition of domestic companies that <clears throat> have uh, like-minded uh, objectives uh, and recognize that uh, it's very difficult to make a major impact if uh, if you have singular uh, participants trying to pursue uh, disparate uh, objectives, uh, getting together uh, and trying to uh, define uh, broad industry goals that reach from charters to owners to ports to uh, to, to, to builders to engine manufacturers, uh, trying to put the senior leadership of these organizations together and to try and define and identify solutions to problems. Um, that's the goal of the Blue Sky Maritime Coalition, and I think is a very uh, it's a very uh, admirable goal uh, and one that we're we're proud to be part of. Uh, I think that. There's a lot of unknown today, uh, and I, I genuinely believe the answers uh, to many of the questions that are being posed about how do we best address climate change are still to be developed. Uh, to me, uh, that's, no, that's no excuse to not try and uh, make incremental progress in the medium, in the medium term. Uh, and I think there's, <clears throat> there's definitely scope for doing that operationally. We can, we can be smarter in the way that we operate our, our vessels. Uh, I think there's as well, uh, in my personal opinion, I think there's scope for looking at carbon capture technology on board vessels uh, that will allow the existing vessel fleet to continue to operate, uh, yet to reduce their carbon footprint uh, through carbon capture. There's a lot of infrastructure work that needs to be done in order to allow that to happen. But carbon capture technology does exist today. Uh, to scale that up, to make it economical, I think is something that's within reach in the next, certainly within the next five to 10 years. Uh, and then the question becomes, how do you build out the infrastructure to allow the carbon once captured on a ship to be offloaded from a ship and then either sequestered or put into use uh, some other uh, uh, recyclable use of, of, of carbon, uh, methanol or, or sustainable aviation fuel or any a number of ideas that are out there of how to recycle that carbon once captured. So I, I personally think it's a really exciting uh, part of the maritime industry today. Uh, and offers a lot of opportunity for uh, forward thinking and, 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 and uh, curious people uh, to seek out solutions that I think uh, uh, can be achieved and uh, will be an important part of our future. Sam, you're giving me so many ideas for future podcasts. I am just ready to wonk out on this stuff. But I know you are a very busy guy, and we told you that we would uh, respect your time today. So I'm going to try to wrap it up and just give you an opportunity, anything you'd like to put a finer point on with respect to the Jones Act, American Maritime, or the great work that OSG does. Thank you, Jennifer. And, uh, you know, I, I think I've kind of said the main points that I, I, I strongly believe that the maritime industry is a vital part of our economy. Uh, the Jones Act uh, has uh, ideological opponents that tend to overblow the, uh, the negative aspects of the Jones Act. I think that some of that is, is driven by opportunism that, uh, that is very specific to some of the opponents that, that, that are out there. I think a broad understanding and, a, and an objective view would uh, would would conclude that 
sustaining the maritime industry in the United States is, is really, really important and that the cost of doing that is actually once spread across the entire country is not that high, not that high compared to the alternatives. And uh, I would really advocate people that, that are, are trying to understand this uh, issue uh, to dig deeper into uh, the, the real facts and not, not be swayed by the sound bites and easy uh, political targets uh, that ten, tend to be put on the backs of, of Jones Act operators like OSG. Uh, because the, the, the issues are much more important than just the, the simple dollars and cents that, that uh, many would lead you to believe are uh, the principal factors here. So um, do a little bit of homework if you're interested in this industry. And I think you will, you will uh, if not agree with me, you will, you will at least understand the perspective that we're advocating. Sam, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, thanks to everybody for tuning in and listening today. We're going to wrap up this issue of the American Maritime Podcast. If you would like to take Sam up on his offer to learn a little bit more, a great place to do that is our podcast series, which you can access at bigwigpodcast.com. That's wig with an H. Uh, we hope you will share this episode with others who are interested in learning more about the Jones Act, about American maritime about its vital role in the transportation of energy and other vital commodities in the United States. Sam, thanks again. I'm Jennifer Carpenter signing off.